Amos chapter 6, if you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me there. If you're new this morning, I've been working my way through the book of Amos over the course of the summer, and we come now to the sixth chapter, and I do promise those who persevere to the end will be saved. Uh, We will come to the end of Amos, and I know that it's been just a message of judgment and a looming disaster and catastrophe from the moment that Brother Amos has began his message, and yet there's so much in this book of the minor prophet section in the Old Testament that speaks to where we are as a society. Amos wrote 800 years before Christ, and yet you won't read anything as relevant and applicable this week as what you'll read right here. You know, in military history, there's a term that exists simply known as victory disease. And it's a phrase that can be traced back to the actions of the Japanese during World War II, during their early days in the war there in the Pacific. But historians believe that the Japanese became overzealous with their expansion efforts across the ocean, and it led them to let down their guard, and they were soundly defeated at the Battle of Midway, and it was there that the term began to be used. But basically, victory disease describes what happens when a nation allows a series of victories to lead them into a place of complacency or arrogance. A similar thing happened at the Battle of Little Bighorn in 1876, where the Sioux practically annihilated the entire 7th Cavalry under the command of Lieutenant Colonel George Custer. Uh, Expecting a repeat of a previous battle, Uh, Custer ignored updated intelligence, neither did he seek it out, and his complacency would prove disastrous for both he and his men. Coaches will tell you that the same thing can happen in the world of sports. A team that's been successful and has racked up a large number of victories can become complacent and they can take what would seem to be an inferior opponent, they can take that opponent for granted and suffer a humiliating defeat. In my mind, I kind of go back to 2007 where App State went into the big house and at the time, Michigan was ranked, I think, number five in the nation. And here you had this little college from the hills of western North Carolina that went in and secured an upset, a major upset in the world of sports. Victory disease. Hey, it's why Rocky Balboa lost to Mr. T. <laughs> Victory disease. You know, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The writer of Proverbs says that pride always goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And the prophet Amos essentially says the same thing here in this sixth chapter. Now keep in mind that the northern kingdom of Israel under King Jeroboam II had become affluent, wealthy. There was no perceived threat from any of their immediate neighbors. The religious shrines at Bethel were full of enthusiastic worshipers, but it was all a thin veneer of whitewash to coat their hypocrisy. 
Society was characterized by greed, rampant materialism, no regard for the poor. A perverted form of justice went to the highest bidder and the prophet Amos comes along and confronts his generation over its pride and over its spiritual complacency. You might could say that Amos, uh, Israel in Amos's day had an ancient form of victory disease that rendered them vulnerable for a major catastrophe that was looming just over the horizon. They were lulled to sleep by their affluence and were ignoring all of the warning signs. And the way that Amos says it in verse 1 of chapter 6, God's people were at ease in Zion. So if you've got your Bible there, let's begin reading with verse 1 of Amos chapter 6. The prophet says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Calne and see. From there, go to Hamath the Great, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house, and shall say to him who's in the innermost parts of the house, is there still anyone with you? He shall say no, and he shall say silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. The horses run on rocks. Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood, you who rejoice in Lodabar who say, have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. I want to speak from this subject this morning, at ease in Zion. Woe to them who are at ease in Zion. What is exactly meant by that particular phrase, at ease in Zion? Well, I think perhaps the NIV translation of verse 1 may help get at the meaning of the phrase. Uh, The NIV translates verse 1 in this way, woe to those who are complacent 
in Zion. To be at ease in Zion is a spiritual complacency that must not be characteristic of the people of God. Uh, It describes an apathy or an overall attitude of indifference in the face of pressing need. And you'll notice that Amos is directing his message here in this sixth chapter to those who were the leaders of Israel. He's speaking to the notable men of the first of the nations. This idea that Israel had become proud, they had become complacent, their leadership had become proud and complacent, and that kind of attitude was fostering just this overall spirit of smugness in the nation. And so notice a few things then from this particular chapter. Uh, Number one, notice what I'm calling the condition of complacency. Amos is describing this condition of complacency uh, with this phrase, at ease in Zion. The point that's being driven home here in the text is that there's an ease that should not exist among God's people. Now I will say this, To be at ease in and of itself is not a bad thing. There are other passages of scripture that invite us into rest. I think about what God did upon creating the universe on the seventh day, God himself rested from his labor. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. The writer of Hebrews in the fourth chapter says that Jesus is our rest. And those who enter into his rest also rest from their own labor. Uh, Revelation 14 says that there is rest promised to those who die in the Lord. So rest, to be at ease in and of itself, is not a bad thing. If you're the type of person who always has to burn the candle at both ends... Uh, never learning the value of rest, you're only going to come apart at some point. Not only does the Bible commend rest, but the Bible commands rest. There is a right kind of rest, and there's a wrong kind of rest, a wrong kind of ease, and that's the kind that the prophet is describing here. It's the rest of indifference, the ease of complacency, A lethargy that's not concerned with righteousness and with justice and with obedience to God's commands. So notice a few things that's characteristic of this particular condition that Amos is describing. First, notice what I'm calling the arrogance of self-assurance. The kind of complacency that Amos is describing is marked by self-assurance. Notice he's speaking to the notable men of society. That word notable translates a Hebrew word that means distinguished. It's a reference to those who were the decision makers in society at large. Those who were the big wigs of culture. Both Zion and Samaria that are referred to there These are references to the capital cities belonging to God's people. Zion is a reference to Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom. Samaria is the city that was the capital of the northern kingdom. It was in these cities that the decision makers of the day made their decisions. Decisions that trickled down and impacted everybody else. And so Amos is bringing a word from God to those who had been entrusted with significant responsibility as far as government, society, 
and culture is concerned. If we were to modernize this in our minds, think about those who constantly have business uh, in the capital cities of their nations. Think about those who have to take the train to Washington on a frequent basis, fly into Washington on a frequent basis. Policy makers, shapers of thought in the overall culture, those in the government, those in the media, those in the entertainment industry, which think about how they often team up with one another and they host major fundraiser events during election years and why is that? It's because power is often found at the intersection of government, commerce, media, and culture. Ladies and gentlemen, there exists within every society a group of people at the top who use their positions of influence to tell those beneath them how to think, how to act, and what to do. That's not just true of modern times, but it's really true of every civilization, uh, both ancient and modern. It was true in Amos' day of Israel. So he's addressing his message to those who live at the intersection of Pennsylvania Avenue, Wall Street, Rodeo Drive, and CNN headquarters. Those in positions of influence. And notice, these are those who saw themselves as being beyond the reach of people. Listen to the words of the prophet as he says, Woe to you who are at ease in Zion, who feel secure in Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Those to whom everyone else in society, they look to you for leadership. So there's this overall self-assurance that's characteristic of this complacency that Amos is describing. And then notice the second thing. This condition is characterized by an attitude of self-reliance. Self-reliance. Both Jerusalem and Samaria were fortified cities that were situated on hills, surrounded by walls that would have been almost impenetrable. And so in time, the strength of the nation became associated with its walls. It became a source of pride for Israel. It fostered a sense of self-sufficiency, self-reliance in which they believed that disaster could never come their way. Other places were susceptible to danger, but not Mount Zion, not Mount Samaria. The people in Amos' day had become indifferent. Another word used to describe their overall attitude would be this word smug. You know what it means to be smug? A smug attitude is one in which there's excessive pride in oneself. Excessive pride in one's achievements. It speaks of someone who is highly self-satisfied. A proud peacock of a man or a woman. It's the attitude of Nebuchadnezzar who's taking a walk on the roof of his palace looking out over Babylon and saying, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power? It's the attitude of Haman who brags to his wife and friends of how Queen Esther had invited just he and the king to a banquet that she was preparing. And Haman recalls to his friends the splendor of his riches, the number of his children, all the promotions with which the king had lavished on him and advanced him above all the officials and servants of the king. 
It's the same attitude that Jesus describes in the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12. A man whose fields produced a great crop, but he had nowhere with, to store all of the crop. He says, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns. There I will store all of my grain and my goods. And he smugly says to himself, so you have ample goods laid up for many years. So relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you've stored up for yourself, whose will they be? Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible warns us against the danger of a self-satisfied attitude. A smug, self-assured, self-reliant attitude. That's what Amos is describing here in this text. He's exposing the attitudes and actions of those who had become complacent. Those who were marked by indifference. So self-assurance. Self-reliance. And then notice a third thing that describes this condition. It's it's this assumption of self-importance. Self-importance. In verse 2, the prophet tells those who are operating under the illusion of their own success, he says, hey, take a gander at these cities, Calneh, Hamath the Great. Then take a trip down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? And so the language then that he's using here, that phrase better than, it's a window into the national conscience in Amos' day. God's people saw themselves as being better than their neighbors, above their neighbors. Yeah, disaster would come to those unbelieving nations, but it could never come to the covenant nation like us. And so their overall complacency led them to compare themselves favorably with other people out of this exaggerated sense of their own self-importance. Now folks, let me just tell you something. Those who are smug often play a game of comparisons in which they're all too eager and quick to point out the weaknesses in other people so as to magnify themselves. They step over, they climb over those they deem as being beneath themselves. They have no problem insinuating weakness in the life of someone else as they're talking about that person to another person. But really it's all just a mask to just try to cover up their own insecurities, their own failures. So this kind of attitude was leading God's people to treat other people as less than those who were made in the image of God. And in verse three, notice Amos says, oh you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. In other words, they put it out of their minds the possibility that disaster could ever come to them. It was nowhere on their radar. That's amazing to me how People often act as if they're never going to die, never going to face God, never going to give an account to God for their life. Let's push the thought of hell out of our minds. Let's live as if this life were all that there is and we're just going to keep right on living as if there is no eternity. That's the mindset of Amos' generation. They put out of their minds the day of disaster and they brought near the seat of violence. 
What does that mean? One person expressed it this way, the seed of violence speaks about the leadership that people tolerate whenever their motivations become perverted. The people put up with wickedness in their leaders because they themselves were wicked. You could take a good long look at the leadership of society and it's almost as if you're looking into the mirror of that society. Our leaders are often a reflection of where we have sunk as a society. I think it was Edmund Burke, that 18th century member of British Parliament who said, all that's necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Complacency. By removing God from our national conscience, unrestrained evil will flourish and drown our nation as we turn on one another. And is that not happening in contemporary American life? where we've turned on each other. Someone says, how did we ever get here? I'll tell you where it started. It started with complacency. It started with neglect. You know, you don't have to abuse your children to harm your children. All you have to do is neglect your children. You don't have to to, um, commit any heinous sin in order to take your own spiritual life for granted. Just neglect it. Those of you who garden, you plant corn and maters and all that good stuff, you neglect your garden, it's amazing how the weeds begin to grow and take over that garden, isn't it? Kind of thing just happens because of neglect. That's the kind of complacency that Amos is describing here. Now, one more thing that I'll say about this overall condition of complacency, it was marked by self-indulgence. The people had an appetite for self-indulgence, and I'll say more about this in just a minute, but notice there, beginning in verse four, Amos pronounces a woe upon his self-indulgent generation. Complacency was manifested through an appetite for the finer things in life, all while those who had legitimate need were being neglected. Greed, materialism, living for stuff. They went to sleep on beds of ivory. They stretched themselves out on their comfy couches. They ate the finest of delicacies. They sang their idle songs and invented musical instruments for themselves. They drank wine by the bowlful, all while anointing themselves with the finest of oils and ointments. And all of that is just picturesque language to show how out of touch with reality these leaders of society had truly become. So here you have this arrogance of the self-assured, the attitude of the self-reliant, the assumption of the self-important, the appetite of the self-indulgent. All of this characterized the complacency of Amos's generation. And even though he wrote these words 800 years before Jesus was born, folks, this could very well be describing contemporary American culture. So that's the condition then of complacency. Notice the second thing. And the second thing would be the cause. Ultimately, what's the cause for the complacency that Amos is describing here in this chapter? Well, if you go down to verse 8, look at the word pride and circle that word pride there in your Bible. 
God says, I abhor the pride of Jacob. I detest his strongholds. So pride then was the underlying root cause of this overall symptom of complacency and indifference that was characteristic of the nation. Their pride resulted in them being propped up by this false sense of security in their position, their prosperity as a nation, their possessions. You'll notice that word strongholds in verse eight. Uh, The idea is that of citadels or fortresses. The idea is that the people were trusting in human defenses rather than God who is the refuge and strength of his people. They used their fortifications as an excuse to push God out of their life. And pride always takes a person down that road. And it can be true of a nation. It can be true of a church. It can be true of the lives of individual men and women. Pride is one of those things that Scripture says in Proverbs 6, God himself hates. I hate a proud look. And God always hates that which harms us. Why is it that God detests pride? Because the pride of man cannot save man, no matter how much man convinces himself that it can. Man must have God. Man has been created for fellowship. Man is wired for fellowship. And only God himself, through the finished work of Jesus Christ, can save a person. And pride will want to minimize that. And so God says, I hate your strongholds. I despise those things that you look to out of a sense of security and identity outside of the relationship that you have with me. So what were some of those strongholds? Well, just a few of those. What about position? They were trusting in their position. Again, go through the chapter. Look at the words used to describe the way that the people viewed themselves. You go back up to verse 1, words like notable, first, better. Again, the word pride. Amos' generation had become characterized by this attitude of superiority. They were proud of their position as Israelites, proud of their individual achievements, proud of their influence. They were the notable men of the first among nations to whom all the house of Israel came. And yet here's the deal. Rather than using their position to serve others, pride led them to use that position to serve themselves. Same thing can happen in a church. Same thing can happen in our lives as individuals with whatever position we have. When we lose sight of God and we lose sight of what that position really is all about, no longer is it a position to serve others, but it becomes a position by which others serve us. And that's never how God intends the church to function. It's not how God intends society itself to function. So they were proud of their position. Something else that was a stronghold that they were proud of was their prosperity as a nation. In a prosperous society such as theirs, they lived for the pursuit of pleasure. One person said it this way, pride had taken them from reality and into the realm of fantasy where they were living their lives. Eugene Peterson paraphrases verses four, five, and six this way in the message. 
Woe to you who were rushing headlong to disaster. Catastrophe is just around the corner. Woe to those who live in luxury and expect everyone else to serve them. Woe to those who live only for today, indifferent to the fate of others. Woe to the playboys, the playgirls who think that life is a party just for them. Woe to those addicted to feeling good, life without pain. Or those obsessed with looking good, life without wrinkles. They could care less about their country going to ruin. So in many ways, they become like those that the Apostle Paul describes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where he says that in the last days, perilous times will come, where men will become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now think about this. The nation of Israel was merely one generation from being completely destroyed by the Assyrians. But their attitude of complacency is brought on by pride, and they're enamored with their prosperity. Position is a stronghold. Prosperity becomes a stronghold. And then possessions. These become idolatrous strongholds. You go through the list in verses four, five, and six and just make a note of all of the possessions and wealth that their prosperity afforded. Beds of ivory, comfy couches, stall-fed calves, music associated with the party life, bowlfuls of wine. I mean, these words are descriptive of luxury and self-indulgence that came at the expense of others. Is Amos making a blanket blanket statement here where he's condemning possessions and wealth? No, that's not what he's saying. What he's condemning is the fact that people have made possessions, they've made gods out of their possessions. They had elevated stuff to such an important place in their life that they were no longer really concerned about the state of their country. He says, you're not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. The only thing you're concerned with is whether or not you can get a nap on your comfy couch. All the while, your neighbor is doing without. The ruin of Joseph, that takes us back to Genesis chapter 37, where Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. You remember how that went down? They stripped him of his coat of many colors. They were intent upon killing him, but they threw him down into a pit while they made their minds up what they were going to do with him. And you know what Genesis 37 says they did while Joseph, while they threw their brother into the pit, Joseph's brothers sat down to eat. Now can you imagine listening to the screams of that boy coming up out of the pit while his brothers sit down to eat? They sit down to the table of their own self-indulgence all the while their brother was stripped and in a pit and they themselves were responsible. And that's what Amos is saying as he's indicting his generation for their indifference. While you're going to sleep on beds made of ivory and taking your naps on comfy couches and you're drinking bowlfuls of wine and living in indulgence, your neighbor is without and God's holding his people responsible for it so again the sin is them being distracted from the real issues of the day and it was pride that was at the root of all of their complacency so that's the cause of this condition 
known as spiritual complacency. One last thing that I'll point out is this. What about a corrective? Is there any corrective in the text that's offered to God's people as far as their complacency was concerned? Well, that's pretty much the theme of verses 8 through 14. What is it that is going to happen as a result of their complacency? God's going to intervene into their situation. That's what's going to happen. Divine intervention. God says, I abhor your pride. I hate your strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. In other words, God's going to intervene to judge the proud and complacent nation. God's going to intervene to bring discipline to the proud, indifferent congregation of believers. God's going to intervene in some way to bring down the haughty and the arrogant man from his high horse. Case in point, think about the church at Laodicea, characterized by a spirit of lukewarmness. And Jesus says, you're neither cold, you're neither hot, but you're lukewarm. Would that you were cold or hot, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. And then listen how he describes their attitude of complacency. You say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, but you don't realize that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You don't realize just how much you need me. You've retreated into your stuff, and because of that, you've become so complacent. And the Lord Jesus says, I'm about to stir the waters. So divine intervention then, that's the need of the hour. By the way, think about this. Long before God ever intervenes in the national life of the northern kingdom, what does he do? He sends his prophets to warn God's people. And for chapter after chapter, message after message, sermon after sermon, God's people had an opportunity to humble themselves and to repent. That's what God longs for. But you see, the thing is, they kept putting off until tomorrow what should have been done today, and you live with that kind of complacent attitude. Let me tell you, my friend, what if tomorrow never comes? And you lose the opportunity. So there's some major application then here for us, for where we're living. Major application. I read something in fact, it wasn't long ago, and someone actually reminded me of this this morning, and I didn't mention this in the first service. But I'm going to mention it to y'all, because it was just that good. I do remember reading something by Dr. Chuck Swindoll that he wrote devotionally some years ago, and the title of this devotional thought was Stop the Revolving Door. Now listen to this. He says, the history of great civilizations reminds me of a giant revolving door. It turns on the axis of human depravity as its movement is marked by the perimeter of time. With monotonous repetition, each civilization has completed the same cycle, having passed through a similar sequence of events. And it can be summarized in this way. From bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from great courage to strength, from strength to liberty, from liberty to abundance, 
from abundance to leisure, from leisure to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependency, from dependency to weakness, from weakness back to bondage. Whether it be the Roman or the Athenian empires, Egyptian or European cultures, the chronicle tells its own tale. Regardless of geography, origin, achievements, or level of prosperity, each one has sunk deeply into the vortex of ruin. Consider Babylon. It can hardly be found today. It's nothing more than a lonely whistle stop along the Baghdad Railroad. Its beauty and significance now lie buried beneath tons of dirt, rock, and debris in a forlorn and forgotten land. Israel can also teach us the same lesson. Just consider the judges. It reaffirms the truth of humanity's cyclical habit time after time. For hundreds of years, the Jews went through a succession of events mentioned above. Like pawns on a chessboard, they lived under the bondage of superior powers until God gave them a deliverer who fired the furnace of spiritual fervor which inflamed their courage, which kindled military strength, then liberty, then abundance, then leisure, and right back down the tube again into bondage. The age-old path of that same revolving door has etched itself upon the tablet of Israel's antiquity. It was about 200 years ago, while 13 colonies were still part of Great Britain, that Professor Alexander Teitler addressed himself to the fall of the Athenian Republic, in which he said, a democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover they can vote themselves excessive gratuities from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising them the most benefits from the treasury. With the result that a democracy collapses over loose fiscal policy, always followed by a dictatorship. It's a stunning fact of history that the average age of the world's great civilizations has been approximately 200 years. According to that reckoning, America may be living on borrowed time. The age-old revolving door is turning, and we are, as I see it, somewhere between apathy and dependency on the historical cycle. It doesn't take a meteorologist to predict rain if the sky is black, and drops are starting to fall. Neither does it take a profit to predict future bondage if we are now a majority of complacent, apathetic people. Hope for our nation rests upon independent thinking and individual effort, the revival of discipline, integrity, work, determination, and healthy pride. It's not a national matter, but it's a personal matter. Inward change and godliness, this is not legislated by Congress. It's spawned in the heart and cultivated in the home long before it's bred in our land. And frankly, it all boils down to just one person, you. A revolving door has to be pushed by those within it. When we stop pushing, it will stop turning, but not until then. Wow. What a thought. 
So here's what I'm saying. You come to a message like Amos chapter 6, a message where complacency is exposed for the indifferent attitude that it is. How could I yawn at the prophet's words? Would you stand with me for prayer? You say, folks, let me tell you something. What can I really do? I feel so overwhelmed. I feel so outnumbered. What can I do? I feel like Hezekiah, king of Israel, surrounded by an innumerable enemy multitude. Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. What can one person do? You know what? That really is the wrong question. The right question is this question. What can God do through the obedience of one person? What can God do through the obedience of one church? But you see, the thing is, we've got to repent of a complacent, indifferent attitude. Cultivate a heart of humility and repentance before God. You know where Israel had failed? Where you and I have failed? Jesus got it right, didn't he? Was never guilty of complacency. Not one time was he ever indifferent. But the Apostle Paul describes the attitude of Christ in Philippians chapter 2. Though he was in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he humbled himself and took upon him the form of a servant. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and has given him a name that's above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't be complacent when it comes to salvation. Don't put off until what you think can happen tomorrow. What if tomorrow never comes? Jesus says, you come to me. I'll give you rest and he'll fire up your soul when it comes to obedience. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word. Save us, Lord, from a complacent, indifferent spirit. May it not be true of my life, Lord God, that I'm indifferent and lazy and apathetic. There's a world of need around me, a city that so desperately needs the gospel. Here I am, Lord. Send me. May that be our attitude. For Jesus' sake, amen.